All right, you guys, we're going to get into the word today. We are in a teaching series called The Balance of Grace. For this Valentine season as a church, we wanted to explore the importance of moral purity, but we didn't want to do it in a way that we were just wagging our finger at people because that doesn't lead anybody to repentance. That doesn't lead anybody to the love of God. So we wanted to look at the importance of moral purity through the lens of grace and how we can respond as believers, as followers of Jesus. And so we put this up last week, but I want to put it up again. This is what the balance of grace looks like. On one end of the spectrum, we have licentiousness, which basically means I can do whatever I want and God's going to be okay with me. That's licentiousness. On the other end of the spectrum, we have legalism, which means I have to follow rules to be right with God. I have to live up to man's expectations in order for God to love me. Both ends of this spectrum are wrong, and we don't want to land on either side. We don't want to be in licentiousness, and we don't want to be in legalism. We want to land in the middle, in the balance of grace. Our core verses are Acts 15, 10, and 11, where Peter says, Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What was that yoke? The law being right with God according to rules. But Peter said, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. So our definition of the balance of grace is this, in the context of discussing moral purity, it's that we no longer live under the burden of law, but moral purity still matters. We no longer live under the burden of law, but moral purity still matters. And so last week in our first part of this series, we asked the question, can a believer keep on sinning? And our answer we got from Paul was, certainly not. May it never be so. And what we did is we explored the grace of God last week, but not just grace that gets us out of hell but a grace that transforms us and empowers us so that we don't have to be who we used to be. And we don't have to keep doing what we used to do. I found this quote this week, and I just thought it was the perfect quote to, to wrap up last week's sermon. This is from Randy Alcorn, who's a, a Christian writer and teacher. He said this, Any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. Man, that is powerful. If we are living in the grace of God, we should never be comfortable sinning. That's the real grace of God. Hallelujah. All right, so today for part two of this teaching series, we're going to ask the question, what is the difference? And you say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? What are you talking about? Well, if we understand that every one of us Still, as long as we live in this flesh, we are going to live with the brokenness of this flesh, which means sin is still going to affect us. We're never going to be perfect. We're always going to have some remnant of sin in our lives. And if that's the case, if every one of us is always going to have some remnant of sin in our lives, then why would we deal with sin? Why would we confront it? 
Why would we talk to our brother or our sister about it? What gives uh, leadership the right to discipline sin and to deal with sin? And are there certain kinds of sins that we should deal with and certain kinds that we shouldn't? What's the difference, right? Shouldn't we just ignore sin and go on with our lives and just assume we're all okay since we all have a little bit of sin? What's the difference? That's the question that we want to ask today. And as we begin to answer it, let's start from here. If, if you've gone to an evangelical church for any length of time in your life, you've probably heard some form of this phrase, which is, all sin is sin. Right? All sin is the same. Every sin is the same in God's eyes. Right? Some variation of that. And the core of that is, is actually James 2.10. Right? James wrote this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Right? And so, so we understand theologically that it only takes one sin to be condemned before the Lord and to face uh, spiritual death and to face an eternity in heaven. And so for that reason, all sin is the same. And so here's the thing. For the unbeliever, all sin is the same. It separates a person from God and condemns them to an eternity in hell. So outside of the grace of God, yes, all sin is the same. But I want us to explore something that, that may be a new concept for you and maybe you've never heard taught in church before. And if you've got your sermon notes, which you can find in your bulletin, or they're attached to this video or they're attached to this podcast, is that here's our big picture point for today, is that for the believer... Not all sin is the same. There are different degrees of sin and judgment based on context and response. And that's what we're going to unpack today is context and response. That there are different degrees of sin. And we want to understand that. You say, well, how can you say that, Pastor? Well, let's go to what Jesus said. John 19 and verse 11, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. Right, who was the Roman governor of Jerusalem at this time. And Jesus uh, wouldn't answer any of Pilate's questions. He stood silently before his accuser, which was a prophecy of the Messiah. And finally, Pilate says, you're not going to talk to me? I have the power, I have the authority to have you be crucified. And then Jesus spoke up. He said this, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. We're going to unpack this a little bit more in just a minute, but we just want to start from the foundation that if Jesus is going to declare that there is a greater sin, then that implies that there are different degrees of sin. If there is a greater sin, that means there has to be a lesser sin, and there are different degrees of sin. And so, what I want to look at first is this idea of different degrees of sin and maybe more specifically, judgment for sin. And so you can see in your notes, I've got kind of four different contexts that we can look at in terms of different degrees of sin and judgment. The first one is violating God's created order. There are some sins that the New Testament kind of hones in on specifically because they are a violation of God's created order. For example, in Romans chapter 1, it says that God has turned people over to the lusts of their flesh. Why? 
because they made idols in the forms of man and bird and creature and bug and reptile. And he says, because they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Why was this a big deal to God? Because it was a violation of God's order. Right? God created everything, and then he chose humanity as his own special possession and put his spirit within us and then commanded us to be stewards of all creation. And yet, rather than stewarding creation, man chooses instead to worship creation. We're supposed to worship God and steward creation, and yet as man, we end up worshiping creation and stewarding God defining him to our whims and to our ideas. It's a violation of God's order. And Romans chapter 1 continues on to say that when God turned people over to the lusts of their flesh, they began practicing homosexuality. And so the homosexuality was a violation of God's order because it was not God's intended purpose for human sexuality. And before anybody pipes up and says, see, we should be outraged by homosexuality, Let's fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where God says all sexual sin is different from other sins. Why? Because all sexual sin is a violation of God's intended purpose for human sexuality. It's a violation of God's created order. And I've talked about this before, and I'll say it again, that one of the reasons the church has lost her authority in the culture is because we have spent so much time screaming about what unbelievers do and not being willing to deal with what we do as believers. All sexual sin is a violation of God's created order, and that's why it's so important for us to deal with moral purity. So violating God's created order, there are certain sins that stand out. The second thing I want to look at is this, is the idea of deliberate versus unintentional. Deliberate versus unintentional. And this goes back to the Old Testament law. In Numbers 15, 22, it says this, but when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments, when you unwittingly fail and do not deserve all these commandments. And then a little later in verse 24, it says, when you unintentionally sin. It then goes on to list what they were supposed to do to atone for that unintentional sin. But then after going through the list, you do this kind of sacrifice, you do this kind of thing, it gets to verse 30 and says, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Right? So he said, unintentional sins, if you do something on accident... Here's the process for atoning for it. But if you do something defiantly, deliberately, you're going to be cut off. And that word defiantly in the Hebrew actually means high-handed, right? It says a high-handed sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to raise your fist against God, that you are defiantly raising your fist against God and saying, I'm not going to do what you said to do. I'm not going to live how you said to live. And the Bible shows there's a clear distinction between deliberate sin versus unintentional sin. Are you guys tracking with me? Come on, how about the third one? What about this? What about repented sin versus ongoing sin? 
repented sin versus ongoing sin. Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Right? So what is he saying here? He's saying if we've already received the knowledge of the truth, we've become believers. Jesus has been revealed to us. We've surrendered our lives to Jesus as Lord. But if we go on sinning willfully, right? Not, not just that we all have sin in our lives. We understand that. No, this is a willful decision. I'm just going to keep on sinning. I'm going to keep on doing what I want to do. It says there no longer remains a sacrifice for that sin. So there is a clear distinction between repented sin versus ongoing sin. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, the great revivalist of the 1800s, Spurgeon said this, to pretend to trust Christ to save you from sin while you're still determined to continue in it is making a mockery of Christ. How could we ask Jesus to save us from sins that we plan on keep on doing? Repented versus ongoing. And the fourth one is this, is confessed versus hidden. Confessed versus hidden. 1 John 1.8, the Apostle John writes this, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, right? So there's a difference between confessed sin and hidden sin. If you just keep going on saying, I'm fine, everything's good, I'm not doing anything wrong, I've got no sin in my life, doesn't say there's any forgiveness for that. But it says when we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us of our sins. There's a difference between a confessed sin versus a hidden sin. So there are different degrees, deliberate versus unintentional. Repented versus ongoing, confessed versus hidden. And then also there are certain sins that the Bible highlights as a violation of God's creative order that are more important to deal with. Sexual sin being one of those, which is why it's so important that we're diving into this idea of moral purity. So let's, let's explore some, some New Testament scriptures here so that we can really understand this idea of sin in context of who we are as believers. God's calling. All right, that's, <laughs> that's all right. So let's go back to John 19.11 where we started today. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given from you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So who delivered Jesus to Pontius Pilate? So theologians interpret this one of two ways. Some theologians say, well, it says he, singular, so Jesus must have been talking about one person. Who would that one person be? Caiaphas, the high priest, is the one who delivered Jesus to Pilate. And so Caiaphas has the greater sin. Or other theologians look at it as who delivered Jesus to Pilate? It was all of the Jews, right? And so all of the Jews. Either way, why... Would either Caiaphas as the high priest or the whole nation of Israel have a greater sin than Pontius Pilate? Because they should have known better. 
right? That's the point that Jesus was trying to get across. They should have known better. They were the people of God, chosen by God. They should have been in relationship with God. They should have known God's hearts. They should have known better. So what Jesus defined as a greater sin had nothing to do with the actual sin. It had to do with whether or not the person should have known better. Let's continue in that vein. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12. Starting in verse 42, Jesus says this, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So what is this parable saying? That when the master puts somebody in charge... The master expects that person to perform the job he was put there for and to behave the way the master expects. So Jesus concludes this parable by saying this, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. So again, it's not about the specific behavior. He's talking about two different slaves who do the same thing are going to receive different punishments. Why? Because one knew the will of the master and didn't do it. The other didn't know. So what does that teach us? That knowing the will of the master makes us more responsible and more accountable. He concludes by saying, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So when we know the will of the Father, we are more accountable. In James, and we're going to skip a few verses here, Antonio, but in, in James, James is talking about don't just go making plans and doing what you want to do. What you should say instead is, if the Lord wills, this is what we're going to do. And then James concludes his thought in verse 17 by saying this, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So again, this means that sin is defined differently for every person. Because for each person, it's what God has revealed to us that we're supposed to do. And if we choose not to do it, it now has become sin for us. Paul discusses it in a different context in Romans 14 and verse 23. Paul says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eat his eating is not from faith. Now, Paul is talking about the, the controversy about certain types of foods and certain types of drinks, right? Should we eat them? Should we not eat them? Yada, yada, yada. And, and Paul's conclusion is it's not the food that matters. It's the faith that matters when you're eating it. And his ultimate conclusion is this. Whatever is not from faith is sin. 
If you're doing anything and you're not doing it in faith, it's sin. What does that mean? That means that if there's a gray area, the Bible doesn't specifically address it, and so you're not sure what to do, that we should seek the Lord for a conviction about what we should do, and then we should operate from the faith of that conviction that this is how we're supposed to live. But if we decide it's a gray area, and I'm not sure, but I want to do it, so I'm just going to do it, the Bible says that's sin. So conviction matters. The theologian Robert Mounts, we quoted him last week, and I want to quote him again because he just wrote a great commentary on on the book of Romans. He says it like this. Whatever is done without the conviction that God has approved it is by definition sin. God has called us to a life of faith. Trust is the willingness to put all of life before God for his approval. Any doubt concerning an action automatically removes that action from the category of that which is acceptable. This principle will be of special help to the Christian in what is sometimes called the gray area. If it's gray, it's wrong. Not in itself necessarily, but for you, the one who's considering it, right? And so living by conviction is important. I have a conviction when it comes to movies. Again, movies are a gray area because there were no movies when the Bible was being written. And so, I mean, there's certain things that you can get specific about, but for the most part, they're a gray area. But for me personally, I have a conviction. I do not watch movies that are rated R for language or sexual content. I just won't do it. Now, if it's rated R for war violence, I'm cool with that because I like war movies, okay? And, and I have dealt with the Lord when it comes to that. But if it's rated R for language or for sexual content, I just won't watch it. Now, I have a good friend who loves the Lord with all of his heart. He's a follower of Jesus, and he desperately wants me to watch Deadpool with him. He's just like, man, Aaron, you would love Deadpool. It's so funny. We would have such a good time watching it. Now, listen, here's the thing. For my friend who loves Jesus with all of his hearts, watching Deadpool is not a sin for him because he's dealt with God. For me, if I were to watch it with him, it would become a sin because I've dealt with God also, and this is the conviction that God has put upon my hearts. Are you guys with me? Anything that's not done from faith is sin. And then finally, let's look at Matthew 11, 21 to 24. Jesus says this, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Right? Jesus chooses some cities here specifically. He chooses Tyre and Sidon because if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon always stood symbolically as the enemies of Israel. And then he chose Sodom because if you read the book of Genesis, you know that Sodom and Gomorrah symbolically represent the most vile, the most sinful cities that were actually destroyed by fire raining from the sky coming down from God. 
So Jesus chooses Tyre and Sidon and Sidon and Sodom. He chooses three cities that represent the worst of humanity. And he says, for you, Jewish cities, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than for those cities. What does that mean? That means there's going to be a stricter judgment for some than for others. Why? Because they had direct revelation of Jesus Christ, and they still rejected him. They had direct revelation of Jesus and his miracles, and they still rejected him. So going back to your notes, let's summarize everything that we just read uh, through these scriptures. As believers, we are held to stricter judgment for our sin. Well, what is that stricter judgment? Let's stop there for a second, because we know that for unbelievers, the judgment for their sin is an eternity in hell. That's cut and dry, right? Hell is hell. It's separation from God forever. So what does stricter judgment look like for believers, right? This... Well, here's the answer. That's next week's sermon. <laughs> you got to come back next Sunday. That's keeping you coming back. That's too big of a question to just dive into here when I've only got a couple minutes left. So you got to come back next Sunday. We're going to talk about the stricter judgment for believers. But let's talk about why are we held to that stricter judgment. The first one is it's based on how much we know God and his word. The more revelation we have of God the more accountable we're going to be held by him. The more we know his word, the more we know the truth of his word, the more accountable we're going to be held, the stricter the judgment. I told you last week that 1 Timothy chapter 1 was going to pop up in all three of these sermons. And so let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as Paul is describing himself to Timothy. Right in verse 12, he starts off by saying, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. So Paul was shown a certain level of mercy because there was ignorance and there was unbelief. So what if it was the opposite? What if instead of ignorance and unbelief, there was knowledge and there was faith? he wouldn't have gotten the same measure of mercy. Do you guys understand? So our knowledge of God and our knowledge of the truth is important in the context of how God is going to deal with us in our sin. Another context is our position of authority and influence. And so specifically, the more in leadership you are in the kingdom of God, the more strict you're going to be held accountable, right? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So it's so important for the shepherd to live with integrity. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. I shared that last week. But it is important that I live with integrity and respond appropriately to the sin that's in my life. It's authority and influence. But you don't just have to have a title, right? Pastor, elder. The longer you've walked with the Lord, the more authority and influence you have in the kingdom of God. And the more accountable you're going to be held. We talked about God's will and convictions for us, right? We're going to be held more accountable the more God has revealed his will to us. The more God has dealt with our heart in terms of certain convictions. And so maybe in the side of your notes, you can write down sins of commission and sins of omission. 
Sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are things that you do that you know are wrong. God has told you they're wrong. He's put a conviction in your heart that they're wrong. You've read the Bible, and the Bible says they're wrong, and you do them anyway. That's a sin of commission. Sins of omission is when you don't do something when you were supposed to. God revealed his will to you and said, this is what I want you to do, and you chose not to do it. That would be a sin of omission. So it could be what we do, and it could be what we don't do. But it's based on what has God revealed to us according to his will and his conviction. And then finally, we are judged strictly based on our response to sin. And this is where I want to get back to grace. Now that we understand that there are different contexts by which we are judged, most importantly is I want us to get back to a place of grace where we are right with God. Even though we live in the brokenness of our flesh, and even though there are some unintentional sins that happen in our lives simply because of our humanity, I want us to get back to dealing with those things so that we don't have deliberate, ongoing, unrepentant, willful sin in our lives. It's our response to sin. And so we're actually going to read from Romans chapter 7, and then I'm going to give you five things that I learned from reading Romans chapter 7 that I believe are going to be powerful for us today. First off, Romans chapter 7 was scandalous because what we have here is Paul, the great apostle, the man who traveled around the known world preaching the gospel and planting churches and raising up leaders. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was anointed by God in powerful, miraculous ways. What we have here is Paul revealing to everybody that even he still struggles with sin. But here's the issue. You know the Bible is broken up into chapters and verses. And you know it wasn't the original authors of the Bible that did that. That was added much later on to be helpful for us to find verses. And there's a lot of good that has come out of the chapters and the verses, right? We read a chapter a day in our rooted Bible reading, so it's helpful that the Bible's broken up into chapters. But when it can be a negative is when we just naturally assume that when there's a break in the chapter, that there's also a break in the flow of thought or the content, right? We just think, okay, well, they're going to a new chapter, so they're dealing with something different. Well, no, that's not how the authors wrote. The authors were just writing a free flow of thoughts as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So here's one of the sections where the chapter break has, has created a wrong interpretation for us. Because at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul reveals to everybody that he still struggles with sin. End of chapter. We stop. And then we get to Romans chapter 8. Well, what is Romans chapter 8? It is one of the richest, most powerful chapters in the Bible discussing the power of the Holy Spirit to set us free from sin and to have victory over sin. The problem is, is that when we separate them, we read this scandalous paragraph about Paul talking about how he still has sin in his life, and we just assume, well, Paul's got sin in his life, and he's settled for it, so I might as well settle for it. I've got sin in my life, too, and it's okay. No, Paul didn't settle for it. As soon as he was done revealing that he still had sin in his life, the very next thing he wrote is about the power of the Holy Spirit to give us victory over sin. 
So what we learn here is that Paul did not settle for his sin. No, Paul uh, understood his sin, confessed his sin, and then surrendered himself to the Holy Spirit to find victory over sin. And then, wash, rinse, repeat, he did it again. When another sin was revealed in his life, he confessed it, he surrendered the Holy Spirit, experienced victory. Are you guys following me? Paul's revelation that he still had sin in his life wasn't to encourage us to settle for mediocrity. It wasn't to encourage us to settle for moral impurity. No, it was to show us that when we recognize our sin, there's a place we can go with it. And there's a victory that can be had. Let's read it. Romans 7, starting in verse 15, Paul says this, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now it's no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's talk about our response to sin, and let's see what we can learn about what Paul just wrote here about his own sin. And what I love about this and the way that God revealed this to me is that all five of these things are all checkpoints. We can go through each one of them, and it's a checkpoint for our heart. Is our heart in the right place when it comes to being in union with Christ and living in this empowering grace of God or is my heart in the wrong place? And this is where I need to respond. Each one of them is a test of the heart. So let's start with the first one. Our response to sin is that we delight in God's standards. Right? What did Paul say? I joyfully concur with the law of God. Other translations say I delight in the law of God. Right? And so regardless of what his behavior was, his delight was in God's standard. So the best way for me to describe what this looks like is to talk about what the opposite looks like. When we don't delight in God's standards, we tend to grumble and say things like, well, why would God tell me to do that? Well, why are there so many rules? Why do I got to do it this way? Why do I have to do it God's way, right? That would be the grumbling of God's standards, not the delight of God's standards. So the first checkpoint of our hearts when it comes to our response to sin is to say, do I delight in God's standards? Do I see what God wants and say, yes, that is the best case scenario. That is what I want. Or are we grumbling about God putting restrictions on my life? We start with delighting in God's standards. If you don't delight 
in the holiness of God's word and what he has called us to, then that's your first checkpoint to deal with in your heart. The second thing that we learn from Paul in his response to sin is that sin breaks our hearts. When he referred to sin, how did he refer to it? Doing the very thing I hate. Doing the very thing I hate. He wasn't happy about his sin. He didn't try to justify his sin or rationalize it. Hey, I'm just a guy. This is what guys do. No, he hated it. He didn't want it to be a part of him. Sin breaks our hearts. Let's go back to Charles Spurgeon again. He said it like this. You will always know whether you are delivered from the guilt of sin by answering the question, am I delivered from the love of sin? If you've truly received the grace of God that saves you from your sin, then it will also change the way you feel about your sin. If you still love your sin, then that's the second checkpoint of our hearts. If you still love the thing that you're doing, that's what we need to deal with before the Lord. Because our response to sin should be that it breaks our hearts. It should be that I hate it. I don't want it. Ignatius of Antioch, who was one of the early church fathers, this was way back in like 100 A.D., shortly after the time of Jesus. Ignatius wrote this. It is impossible for a man to be freed from the habit of sin before he hates it. Come on. If we want to be set free from sin, we got to hate it. Our response to sin, the third thing that we learn from Paul is that we long for something better. Paul kept talking about there was a good that he wanted to do. There was a way that he wanted to live. There was this thing that he desired, but he struggled with it. But he longed for something better. He never settled for the brokenness of his humanity. So our response to sin is that we long for something better. Man, this is who I am right now, but I want to be something better. This is what I'm doing right now, but I don't want to keep doing it. I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to be transformed. I want my life to look different. So again, the third checkpoint of our heart is, have I settled for living this way? And if I've settled for living this way, then I need to deal with that in my heart. Because in my heart, in the grace of God, I should long for something better. I should long to grow from grace to grace, day by day, in my walk with the Lord. The fourth response is we confess and repent. Right? Paul confessed for the whole world to hear. He wrote a letter that would be read for thousands of years after he died. He confessed, I have sin in my life. Our response to sin should be to confess it. We learn from 1 John that we confess it to the Lord. And we learn from James who said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. As long as we want to live in a place of hiddenness and darkness, then we are living in the shame of the enemy and we're living right where the enemy wants us to live. But when our response to sin is to confess it and to say, this is what I did, and I don't want to do it anymore. 
we're now set free from the power of shame that the enemy has over our lives. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We confess and repent. And then finally, number five, transitioning from chapter seven to chapter eight, what do we do with our sin? We submit to the Holy Spirit's power for victory. We don't settle for it. We don't rationalize it. We don't continue in it. We don't make excuses for it. We give ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and we allow the Holy Spirit to empower us to find victory. And if you're struggling in that, then read Romans chapter 8 and read it over and over and over again. And every time you've got a sin in your life and you're not finding victory, go back and read Romans chapter 8 and find the victory. Five responses to our sin. Let me have the, whole, the uh, worship team come back up today. I almost said let me have the Holy Spirit come back up today. Did you hear that? Which is cool too. Holy Spirit, walk amongst us. Speak to us. So we got all five of them up on the screen. I want to pray today and I want us to go into worship. And I want this to be a time of meditation and reflection. I want this to be a time of allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us. What checkpoint do we need to deal with? Where are we at on the process of our sin? Understanding that we are believers. And though, yes, in the brokenness of our humanity, we will always deal with, with sin in this flesh, that we would never settle for it and that we would never be okay with it. And so we go through the checkpoints. Where is my heart? And Lord, where do you want to deal with my heart? Am I delighting in the way that God wants me to live? Do I hate my sin? Am I broken by it? Am I longing for something better in my life? Have I confessed it or am I keeping it hidden? And have I submitted it to the Holy Spirit's power for victory so that I don't have to walk in it anymore? Where am I on the checkpoint? Where is God dealing with my heart today? Father God, we invite you here today. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you deal with each one of us individually just as we have learned as believers, Lord? That it's not simply the deed, that it's the context and the response to that deed. And so, Lord, would you come deal with each one of us where we're at? We're all in a different place on our journey. We all have a different level of our knowledge of you, Lord, of our revelation of who you are in our lives. We're all at a different place of knowing and learning your truth and studying your word. We're all at a different place of having your will revealed to us. We're all in a different place of gray areas and what are our convictions in those gray areas? We're all in a different place of growing in the authority and influence that we have in the kingdom of God. So Lord, would you deal with each one of us where we're at? In your grace, Lord, would you show us where these checkpoints matter to us and where you want us to grow and where you want to change our hearts today, Lord. We want to live in your grace. We want to live in your grace, that empowering, transforming grace. And so, Lord, we don't ever want sin to stand between us. And so, Lord, where there is sin, I want to confess it. I want to repent of it. I want to find victory. I want to be broken by it. I don't want to settle for it. I want to long for something better. 
Would you speak to each one of us today? And Lord, if there's anybody here today who came in under the category of an unbeliever, they have not declared Jesus as Lord of their life. They have not surrendered to his will. They have not been born again by the power of salvation that comes when we give ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. Their sins have not been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, would you redeem them today from an eternity in hell? I pray that today would be the day that they would make that decision and they would give themselves to the goodness and the grace which you have provided, Lord. And they would find the newness of life that you have promised. Thank you for that, Jesus. Lord, work in our hearts today. Jesus, Jesus, work in our hearts today. Cleanse us, Lord. Like Joshua the high priest, take off our dirty garments. Put on clean ones. We want to be burning sticks in your hand. We want to reflect your love and your glory. So we want to respond rightly to the sin in our life. Jesus, Jesus, we thank you for this, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen.